This is Mary Beth Hunter with the third episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's new podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today, we're speaking with Amanda Ripley, a major force in bringing conflict transformation to journalism and the general public. Amanda's landmark article, Complicating the Narrative, brought into focus a new way of thinking about dysfunctional conflict. She is the author of the books High Conflict, The Unthinkable, and The Smartest Kids in the World. Amanda has also co-founded Good Conflict, which offers guidance to those seeking to disagree more constructively. After the show, stay tuned for more information about how to stay in touch with Amanda and us. Today, we are speaking with Amanda Ripley, who is a giantess in conflict transformation. And when I start, I first started working in conflict transformation, someone always said, have you read Amanda Ripley? She is in some ways, the genesis of the way we in the modern America are thinking and talking about how we should approach polarization. So we could do about 47 hours with this woman, but she's busy. So we are going to just concentrate on the big stuff. The article I mentioned is called Complicating the Narrative. And so I'd like to start there, Amanda. That's considered a classic and is that what you expected or what kind of response did you expect while you were writing that? Well, first of all, thank you, Mary Beth, for the very generous over-the-top introduction. I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited to be here with you talking about all of this. And no, I definitely did not expect <laughs> that reaction from that story. Probably by far the biggest surprise I've ever had with any story. In fact, okay, so the, the backstory here is that after the 2016 presidential election, I was sort of adrift, unsure how to be useful as a journalist, because it felt like any story I might do would either make things worse or have no effect at all. And it just seemed like journalism wasn't working the way mm -hmm. it was supposed to. The places I wrote for were not trusted by half the country. So then what were we even doing? <laughs> These were the existential questions that were haunting me. And so I started just kind of casting about trying to figure out, you know, what was I missing about how this conflict was changing how we communicate in this country and what can be done. And so as part of that, I went to a gathering of different what are called, you know, bridge building groups that was brought together by the Einhorn Collective in Atlanta. This was years ago. And these are groups trying to help Americans talk across different divides. And while I was there, I ran into David Bornstein, who's a journalist who started this nonprofit called the Solutions Journalism Network, which is really cool. And I highly recommend to people. He said, hey, what are you doing? And I hemmed and hawed about the existential questions. And he was like, okay, so you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I said, yeah. And he said, what if we commissioned you, we, the Solutions Journalism Network, to go off and just write an essay about what journalists could learn from conflict mediators, people who understand conflict intimately, but differently. 
than journalists, right? People like peace negotiators, divorce lawyers, rabbis, ministers, you name it. And uh, in my head, I was thinking, yeah, I don't think we have that much to learn from those guys. Uh, We know a lot about conflict, right? Every story has conflict. That was drilled into me when I was like 22. Um, But because I I was at such a loss for what else to do, I was like, sure. And that really changed the course of my career and my thinking because I realized very quickly (laughs) that there was a lot about conflict that I had not understood, that most journalists do not understand. So the article is now embraced by people in genres far outside of journalism. As you found when you started working on it, there are so many different routes to helping us find a way out of this. So this is affecting teaching, documentary making, how we approach tech and algorithms. How do your rules of listen more and better and ask questions that don't agree with the prevailing narrative work with that? How does that affect genres outside of journalism? Yeah, I was really surprised by that. You know, a funny thing is that journalists don't think anyone wants to read anything about journalism. It feels like sausage making and sort of meta. So that's a blind spot that I think a lot of journalists have. And I think, yeah, people don't want to read boring, repetitive, predictable stuff about journalism. That's true. But, you know, I think that because we're in it, we don't realize how it lands for other people. So I did go off and write this long essay. And it was long. I mean, it was like unforgivably long. And, (laughs) you know, David and his colleagues at Solution Journalism Network really loved it, and they didn't make me cut it too much. So now we're in really dangerous territory, right? Because it was like 9,000 words. And I submitted it, I sent it to big national outlets I had relationships with, and one after the other, they all said the same thing, which is, this is fantastic, super interesting. Could you cut it down by 90% and make it not about journalism? And after the third time, my feeling was, sure, I'll do that. I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe people don't want to read about this. I don't know. I mean, usually editors, as much as I hate to admit it, usually they're right because they can, they have a sense, they're further removed from the story and they have a sense of what the public appetite is for something, but not on this, right? And so I said, sure, let's do that. And David was like, hmm. Uh, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we want to do that exactly. But so what we did was we cut it way down and made it less about journalism for the Guardian, and then we put the whole thing all about journalism up on Medium, mm. which is just for free. Anyone can post there, and um, that's the one that really went viral. Is the long one that was about journalism on Medium, and it it was it was shocking because look, I've written a lot of stories that I thought were way better and more riveting that got way less attention. So. I think it just was like the timing because people were feeling like there's got to be a better way to do this. And like you said, most of them were not necessarily journalists. There's just like a deep feeling of yearning for a different way to cover really difficult conflict. And so after it came out and we got this unexpected reaction, a bunch of people, including people outside of journalism, were like, how do we put this into action? can you help us? Can you give us a workshop? And I was like, no, I, that's not what I do. <laughs> but again, thank God for David and his colleagues, because they said, sure. And they hired this amazing journalist named Helen Bianduti Hofer, who comes from broadcast journalism, who created a curriculum all about 
these ideas all based on you know, psychology and conflict mediation taught tons of people and most of them journalists how to get smarter about conflict so that we make fewer mistakes what do you mean by get smarter about conflict it turns out there's the thing we fight about endlessly the thing that conflict seems to be about and then the thing it's really also about which i like to call the understory of the conflict but it's very important to try to figure out what that is and you can waste a lot of time and blood and heartache having the wrong fights with the wrong people about the wrong things and that means you're never having the right fight that you really do need to have because conflict is good it is important conflict is how we push each other to get better and how we get pushed the problem is when conflict becomes high conflict or malignant conflict it's sometimes called in the research and really becomes self-destructive conflict for conflict's sake all consuming where we start to feel like we're morally superior than the other side and we make just a ton of mistakes and eventually the most diabolical thing about every high conflict i've looked at is you start to harm the thing you went into the conflict to defend right whether it's your kids in an ugly high conflict divorce mm. or your country in high conflict politics how do we not just get smarter about it talking about the way people are investing themselves and their whole identity in these conflicts how can we avoid that and concentrate more holistically on who we are and how we're viewing these issues so fast forward i ended up writing a book called high conflict about people who have made that shift people and organizations mm -hmm. and communities who have been stuck in really ugly high conflicts whether they're political or gang violence or a number of things and who shifted into good conflict the sort of healthy conflict where we get stronger and trying to figure out what is the pattern and what happens first second and third and then Helen who I mentioned earlier she and I ended up creating an organization called Good Conflict together to try to once again put these things into practice. So one of the things that we find to be really helpful is we have a list of questions that you can find on our website, but questions to ask people in conflict that we've collected from crowdsourcing with people like you and journalists and conflict researchers, anyone who does this work in different ways. Questions that help us get to that understory that get us unstuck from the same old talking points and defensiveness that you you tend to most of us fall into in most conflicts. You're talking about the four steps in your methodology. Would you mind speaking more specifically about those? Sure. So there's different ways to try to unearth, right, the understory and it sort of depends on what your goal is, who you are, what the relationship is. That's really important. But one of those steps is to investigate the understory and within that there are these questions to ask in conflict and so some of those questions are very personal which is a really good way to get underneath a conflict how has this conflict affected you personally and what life experiences shaped how you think about this you know whether it's abortion or inflation right look probably you didn't 
study this for 15 years and get a PhD in economics? How, how did you develop your views on this subject, whatever it is? How do you know whom to trust, right? Because there's so much information out there, it can be really hard right now. Those are the questions we want to kind of start with and then get into questions that help us get out of just what's wrong and help us explain what it is we really want. So one that I like that actually comes from family therapy is what would it be like if you woke up tomorrow and this problem was solved the way you want it to be solved? Like, how would you know? And Hmm. can you walk me through that day? You know, you wake up, maybe your cell phone goes off. How do you know? And it just kind of gets us out of our usual bunkers and we start imagining something better. It forces specifics rather than, well, we should just do this, which is easy to say. Right. Like if I were to ask you just, you know, to put you on the spot, if you're worried about the future of the country and democracy and polarization, which I'm assuming you are, is that fair? Of course. Yes. Okay. What would it be like if you woke up tomorrow and that problem was solved? How might you know? I think people would be honest on social media without being attacking. Okay, so you wake up, maybe you pick up your phone. What do you open up? Twitter? What are we looking at? Sure, Twitter. Okay, so what would give you your first clue that you've entered another dimension in this sci-fi movie and things are like depolarized? What would that look like? You said they would be honest. Honest and less attacking because I feel like social media is very much a game of gotcha with the quote Mm -hmm. tweeting and taking things out of context and aiming for the zingers rather than having an actual discussion. Okay. So you would sense, oh, wow, there's more good faith, honest inquiry and debate and exchange of ideas and and disagreement, right? It wouldn't be like there's no disagreement, I'm guessing. Of course. And dropping of double standards. What I'm seeing more and more often is people willing to give their own side, so to speak, a lot more slack than Mm. they would give to those who are maybe working in opposition to them. So you would get the sense that people were not quite as quick to assume the worst and sort of have a distorted view in which they hold different groups to different standards. Is that right? Yes. And that I think that happens in personal relationships as well. We're reacting to what we think the other person is doing and thinking rather than what their intent was. Absolutely. We've got a script in our head, right? It's hard to let go of it. And then, okay, you get up, get dressed, but you have some oatmeal, whatever. And then how else might something was up? I think a lot of people would speak a lot differently. I think there's a lot of coded language. So Mm -hmm. when I would sit down to start writing and I was reading what other people were saying about the topic, I wouldn't see these shortcuts to what red thinks, what blue thinks, Mm -hmm. how red talks, how blue talks. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, we would be, as you mentioned, getting to the root of things. I'm hearing a theme of more direct communication that's less sort of clouded by the conflict. Is that yes. right? Yes, because I feel it's it's so easy to get emotionally involved when, as 
the other guests we talked to, they always speak about how when we get into political arguments, we always feel as if our identity and our value system is being attacked. Hmm. And so when that's involved, it's very hard to get the emotions unwrapped from that. And I'm wondering, how would it feel for you to be noticing those changes in this imaginary depolarized climate? I would feel incredibly hopeful and I would feel free. And I know other people would feel much freer to be themselves, express themselves and not quash their opinions, but instead focus that energy on expressing everything that they are holding dear and what their experiences are, expressing that in a way that is truthful and understandable by others rather than being in attack mode. Hmm. Sounds like it would feel liberating and also less exhausting. Exactly. Everybody's (laughs) exhausted. (laughs) You'd be free, you said. Hmm. Yes. I think that is an issue with a lot of people, that they feel that because they feel one way on one issue, Mm. they need to snap into the 18 other opinions that tend to go with that. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes eat your own. So if we were able to break that down and say, well, I think this on that, but on the other hand, I think mm-hmm. this on that, the human mind wants to put everything in neat little boxes, doesn't it? Especially in in high conflict, yeah. Into ideally two, me and you, mm-hmm. <laughs> us and them, right? Exactly. So how do you think this method of conversation can decrease polarization? What's the foundation of that? Well, when you said to me, I would feel free. That tells me what's missing, what what the cost of this conflict is for you and many other people. And then it just makes it possible to talk about values and aspirations and hopes and fears and the things that are usually really driving every conflict. We know from the research that there are a few reliable things that tend to get humans spun up in high Mm -hmm. conflict. And one of those is humiliation, just to take an example, where people feel like they or their group have been somehow subjugated, disrespected in a public way, right? Brought low. And that is driving every high conflict I've ever seen, whether it's the war in Ukraine or domestic violence. And until you start addressing that, doesn't mean people are right to feel humiliated, right? Doesn't mean Putin's right to keep telling Russians that they've been humiliated, right? But until you start talking about that and how we got to feel humiliated and what makes us feel humiliated and the opposite, what would feel like we were being treated with dignity? What would feel like respect? Until you can have that conversation in in different ways, right? Depending on the context, then you're really trapped in the conflict. And so when we can talk about what your hopes and aspirations are and what your fears are, it can help us to get to the heart of the matter. Does that make sense? That, that makes perfect sense. And with this methodology, what are we looking for when we've uncovered the roots? What comes next? Well, the first thing that we do, which is what people who study intractable conflict do, even before we investigate the understory, is to identify the high conflict and map it which is actually kind of fun. We've done it in workshops with people. And, you know, it's basically creating a map 
of what are the various players and forces that are driving this conflict, including humiliation or fear or a desire for dignity. And, and then also, who are the people or institutions or forces that are interrupting mm-hmm. conflict, that are creating space in the conflict, whether it's, it could be a faith leader, it could be a kind of outlier politician or journalist, right, who's not going with the flow on this stuff. It could be a family member, depending on the high conflict. So just kind of getting it out of your head and onto paper so you can sort of see which voices have I not paid enough attention to yet, whether I'm writing about this conflict as a journalist or whether I'm in it, you know, and which are, where are the openings? So I'm looking at my wall right now and I have a conflict map on the wall that is from an actual conflict and a really gnarly, intractable conflict in South Sudan. And it's got a couple dozen different forces and players on it. And some add to the violence and conflict and some take away, for example, perceived threat against a group. That's obviously going to add to high conflict as is demonization of the other, right? But then you also have things like outgroup contact, right? So interactions under certain conditions with the other, right? Best way we know of to reduce prejudice and support for violence. So you start to see the conflict. It's very hard to see it Mm -hmm. when you're in it. And then the next step is to investigate the understory by asking those different questions, by using looping, which is that listening technique that I talk about in the book and also that I was doing with you, where I was just sort of checking to make sure I was understanding what you were saying and and asking if I was getting it right, you know? I feel seen. Yay! (laughs) And then the next two steps are to illuminate the conflict based on what we've now learned about what's the right fight. Like, what is it we really need to be, what can we kind of release our grip on? And what's the thing that we really need to be fighting about? And then try to cultivate the last and most important steps in a lot of ways is to cultivate good conflict in your community by sort of establishing guardrails, rituals, vocabulary that help us because there's going to always going to be a new conflict, right? As there should be. And so you want to kind of establish those traditions and rituals. So you're ready. You mentioned your book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and, and How We Get Out. You've also written two other nonfiction works that I want to mention here, The Unthinkable Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why, and The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. Do you see any common threads between these three pieces, and has one informed the other? It's funny that it took me this long, but it was not till this third book was done that I started to see that they're all the the same exact pattern. (laughs) I don't know why I didn't notice before, but they seem to be about very different things, right? I mean, one is about disasters, one is about education, and this is about conflict. But in every case, there are sort of like wicked problems that I was covering as a journalist and to hit a wall at some point um, where I just couldn't figure out where to find hope basically. And so the best thing I know how to do and really my only skill is to find people who have been through the woods and out again and learn from them. You know, what in every case, so with the unthinkable, it was finding people who have been through really high stress life or death situations, whether it's a hurricane or a terrorist attack or whatever, and saying, you know, what, what was that like? 
what surprised you physically, socially, emotionally? What do you wish you had known? Because it turns out there's a lot that disaster survivors Mm -hmm. have to say about those things that usually don't make it into our official emergency preparedness plans and conversations Mm -hmm. because they're not usually at the table. But um, so that was the same thing with the smartest kids in the world where it was like, I I kept seeing this data. We have like better data than we've ever had about what kids in other countries are able to do in math, reading and science. And it just was clear that there was just a small number of standout countries where virtually all kids were really learning to think for themselves, regardless of their background. And it just didn't add up again. It was hard to understand why Finland and not Sweden, you know what I mean? So, so I followed American teenagers who spent a year studying in schools in those countries, in public high schools, and could compare their schools back home in Oklahoma or the Bronx or what have you to their schools in Poland, South Korea, and Finland. So it was the same concept, right? Was find those people who, are, who have learned sometimes the hard way <laughs> a lot about before and after or this place and another place. And the same with high conflict is people who were stuck in really toxic conflict and are not anymore. You mentioned a few minutes ago relationships with family members. I know you just wrote this article about how to talk with family members, but this goes far beyond the how to talk to your insane racist uncle on Thanksgiving. (laughs) So uh, did anything surprise you when you were working on that? Yeah, this was really fun because you hear a lot of advice about, yes, how to talk to your insane uncle. And it always, for me, always felt a little flat. And so in this case, we had somebody come to the podcast I host is called How To. And the every week we have somebody who comes to us with a problem that they're trying to work on. And then we find an expert and the three of us get in a room basically and workshop the problem and try to help them. And so in this case, we had a someone come to us who wanted to change how she talks about politics with her dad, who's more conservative than she is because it was really straining the relationship. So she and her, her brother, both of whom are grown, asked for coaching, which we gave them. But here's the cool thing, is they then, with his permission, with their dad's permission, recorded the conversation they had afterward about politics, which was like three hours long, wow. not easy. But, and then we were able to listen to it and provide some like, post-game analysis with them, which was really fun. And so you got to see the full arc, right? Like where they were when they came in, what they learned in the coaching, mistakes they made in the conversation, right? Because these things are not easy. Um, And also the surprises. There were things that came up that I would say they got to the understory, which is is pretty awesome. It doesn't happen immediately, but they, they figured out, at least they glimpsed what it was they were really fighting about when it came to politics, which until then they had spent years either avoiding talking about politics and feeling bad and angry or having kind of endless loop debates that weren't kind of going anywhere. Right. The intractable conflict, it always comes back to that. Yeah. Right. So it was cool. It was really cool. Now I'm going to turn one of your questions around on you. If we, as you say, get smarter about conflict, what would that look like to you? 
I think one of the things that I have learned just as a really easy example is the way that humiliation supercharges conflict. So Nelson Mandela had this great quote where he said, there's no one more dangerous than one who's been humiliated. Mm. Even when you humiliate him rightly, (laughs) which I love. So for me, that's meant, you know, I don't want to embarrass people, especially when there's an audience, right? Right. Um, it, because it goes against my interests. So I don't engage in that on social media. I'm happy to have a conversation in good faith with people, but I'll bring it, I'll DM them if it looks like they're up for that. I just try to remove the audience. And also it's really helpful if people are behaving in ways that just don't seem to make sense to you. Just ask yourself, is it possible that they feel humiliated? whether hmm. they should or not. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, it explains a lot and helps you understand what they're doing, which makes it easier to understand how you could theoretically interrupt that cycle. It sounds like there is a lot of the personal involved in what we do as a group. Right. I mean, uh, humans behave the same way in high conflict There's really not a lot of differences, whether it's, you know, in a high conflict divorce or at scale in a war. The differences are in resources, what kind of leaders you have, access to weaponry. Those things are different and they matter, right? But the behavior, the impulse, the sense of collective humiliation, those things are pretty predictable. And those can be dealt with by how? First of all, we have to understand what those things are, right? Like we have to understand how things like humiliation, how conflict entrepreneurs and binary group identities, how those things tend to trick us into high conflict. Conflict entrepreneurs, I love that. I think they exist, but a great term for it. Yeah, I mean, that's something that also comes from conflict in other countries is there's always people who exploit conflict for their own ends. And we are all capable of being conflict entrepreneurs, especially in a time like this, where it's really incentivized on social media and sometimes on cable news. There's a lot of attention and power that has been, that has been granted by, by many of us, right. To conflict entrepreneurs. It's important to just at first notice who they are and then try to distance yourself from them. And even our brains are involved, the brain chemistry, the dopamine rush when you feel as if you've gotten the dunk and then you get affirmation for that. Exactly. Yeah. You get a lot of affirmation and it feels, it makes you feel like bonded to your group. It makes you right, which is a good feeling, right? Right. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of incentives. It's hard to back out of that. Yes, it is. Um, The deeper you get, the harder it gets. Yes, absolutely. Well, Amanda Ripley has to go. She is off to complicate more narratives. But before we say goodbye, where can we find you online? So some of those resources I mentioned, like questions to ask in conflict, are at thegoodconflict.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Amanda Ripley. Where she will 
be polite to you and yeah, she will try to get the root to the problem. Really try not to humiliate you. If exactly. Nothing else. Yeah, it's a low bar, but. <laughs> <laughs> May you multiply and thrive in your efforts. <laughs> Amanda Ripley, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. We really appreciate you and we hope to speak to you again. Thanks, Mary Beth. Good to talk with you. It was an honor to speak with Amanda Ripley. You can learn more about Amanda's incredible career at amandaripley.com and thegoodconflict.com. She's also on Twitter as Amanda Ripley. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, Find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And remember, don't feed the conflict entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm.